Coming up in this episode. The frustration for me is with businesses thinking internally and thinking parochially. The challenge is to think outside the box. Uh, and we both know the, 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 the situation we try to tackle and still are tackling in Enupeg and other businesses, which is about the utilisation of vehicles around Europe. You know, a third of HGVs running on the roads in Europe are empty. And of the ones not empty, they're about 60% full. And businesses don't appear to be capable of tackling this problem. The Logistics Collective podcast is a series focused on the logistics industry, where there are many incredible stories to be told. We'll be speaking with those who've worked and are working within the industry today. What have been their experiences, good and bad, since joining? And would they recommend a career in the industry to others? Here's your host, Malcolm Pope. Hello. Today I have the challenge of introducing a true legend of the supply chain and logistics industry. And uh, it's going to be a long introduction. I'm going to have to apologise to the listener for that, but it's, it, it, is, it is the absolutely appropriate thing to do. So, simply, his journey defies full description, but a flavour would be 40 years leading innovation and invention in the logistics and supply chain industry. And by innovation, I mean true original thought on how to make logistics and supply chain more efficient through modelling and use of technology. Our guest today has dreamt and delivered the logistics present we live in, but also has a keen eye on the future of sustainability in supply chain and logistics. So he's a University of Oxford graduate, and the foundation of his career was literally cast in steel, and from there he was further cast into leading logistics and supply chain roles in the consultancies PwC, that's PricewaterhouseCoopers, and FSO. But beyond the career in industry, he's been a leading light in academia, founding what is now the Cranfield Centre for Logistics and Supply Chain Management, and he's trained, inspired, and certainly provoked into action many of the logistics and supply chain leaders of today. A great proponent of pragmatism in the academic world, he has sought to create and promote alliance between industry and academia. Additionally, our guest has led many esteemed organisations, being former chairman and president of the Chartered Institute of Logistics and Transport, chairman of the European Council on Global Supply Chain, leadership of the Supply Chain Council, and served on the board of the European Logistics Association, and also was the founder and the key energy behind the European Logistics Users, Providers and Enablers Group, LUPEG, which has a key aim to drive collaboration in our logistics and supply chain, which is where I met him 20 years ago when I led the European Collaborative Working Group for the FMCG sector within LUPEG. He's been awarded many times for his contribution to the logistics and supply chain industry, including the Sir Robert Lawrence Gold Medal Award, the Honorary Fellowship of the CILT, a Lifetime Leadership Award from the Logistics Leaders Network, all topped off by being awarded an OBE for his services to the logistics industry. So, there's Liveryman of the Worshipful Company of Carmen and Freeman of the City of London, who still found time to love and cherish his wife and five children, Despite all these incredible endeavours in industry and academia, and I've certainly not listed them all, I offer a warm welcome to my friend, inspiration and mentor, guess who? It's Professor Alan Waller. Hello, Alan. How are you? Thank you very much, Malcolm. It's great to be here. So today we're, we're here to talk a little bit about your journey from the back streets of Wolverhampton all the way through to Buckingham Palace and meeting her late majesty, the Queen, to receive your OBE, and really also thinking uh, beyond that too. So I had a list of questions in my mind that, that were far more than 100 long, but I'm going to be really selective. So my first question to you, Alan, is 
Why is logistics and supply chain so fascinating to you? Well, Malcolm, it's uh, thank you for the introduction. That's a very nice uh, description of my career. Um, I got into the supply chain and logistics by chance, really, but it's a fascinating area, supply chain. Uh, I mean, it's really fundamental to practically everything we do in this world. Uh, the clothes we wear, the food we eat, our health, the defence of our country, uh, every aspect of our life is touched by supply chain. And if we look at, uh, at supply chain, we have to think not just of where we get these things from, like Marks and Spencer's or Tesco, but all the way back to raw materials, uh, primary manufacturing, secondary manufacturing, uh, distribution, channels to market, uh, returns, recycling. Uh, it's a huge area that um, defies description in many ways, and most people don't really appreciate the power of supply chain. But once we start looking into how the supply chain is structured, how it works, we can realize the complexity of it, but also the beauty of it. Each business has a control of just a part of the supply chain it works within, but its success is dependent on the success of that type of supply chain. If products don't arrive from China or if uh, from the Far East, or if we can't get um, the ingredients for a product, or if we can't get them to market because of whatever happens, then that's a major problem in the way in which we run our business. So we need to understand the extended supply chain, which is all the way through to, as I said, raw materials. And if any business wants to look at supply chain, we need to actually map the supply chain uh, of which we are part, all, all the way from raw materials through uh, returns recycling, as I said. The, the, the challenges have developed over the years. I mean, in... In the in in the 1960s, there was a focus up to then. There was a focus on manufacturing costs, but with the extended um, marketplaces, globalization in particular, uh, the separation of manufacturing from the point of consumer created more transport and distribution costs. So the focus on manufacturing in the 60s was replaced by in the 70s by thinking about manufacturing and distribution in totality because the distribution costs can also be very significant and can outweigh manufacturing costs in many cases. And when we move on to the 80s, we get procurement coming in there. In other words, it's not just the manufacturing and getting the product to market, but it's it's the inbound logistics, both in terms of raw materials and in terms of finished goods that we may be passing on into the market. So the concept in the 1980s was to think about what was called total logistics. So the logistics activities from the start of the supply chain to the end. Then in 1993, the term supply chain management was developed and started being to be used. Essentially, I see logistics as the skill set to manage this total supply chain. And it's that, uh, it's that, it's that complexity that logistics as a, as a function needs to be able to, to handle. If we move into the 2000s, we saw supply chain as being a source of competitive advantage in the marketplace. So it's not enough just to have the product uh, at the right quality and the product at the right price, but the product has to be available to the customer. So if we look at companies like Coca-Cola, um, their mission is to have Coke within reach, within arm's reach of everybody on the planet. So that is a supply chain, a logistics task, but it's part of their um marketing mission. I, I've done a, a huge amount of work for Unilever, and I'll probably talk about Unilever again later on, but I've worked for Unilever all around the world, um, not just in Europe. 
but in in, in Asia Pacific, North America, um, and there was a, a sort of a, 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 a very important occasion some years ago when I was working with the Unilever board in Rotterdam, and the chairman of Unilever at that time um, was um, Tabas Black, Maurice Tabas Black, and I managed to get him on the platform with me at a conference. And he introduced the conference, which was a supply chain conference. And I thought that his quotation uh, was so powerful because he said, uh, and he said, you can quote me on this, um, our focus in Unilever is on brands and consumers, but without an effective supply chain, we cannot begin to compete. And that was 30 years ago. And that's, I think that's one statement by the chairman of Unilever changed the perception of many companies around Europe and around the world in terms of realizing how important supply chain was to delivering the the business capability uh so it's it's a it's a fat, it's a fascinating area Marco. i've i over over the years i've i've i counted up 55 strategic uh, supply chain studies that i've been involved in uh five of them genuinely global ones uh most of them pan european or pan asia pacific or north american integration studies uh, and also a lot of country-based studies. Uh, but it, it, although each business and sector are different, there are some, there's a lot of commonality in the techniques, the supply chain techniques, the supply chain thinking that you can take uh, the learning from and move from one sector to another. And I see uh, consultancy and academia as, as being key players in actually cross-pollinating industries uh, to take forward and take around best practice. Uh, not only take in best practice, but learn from the successes and mistakes of businesses to take them on uh, your journey yourself into other companies. The complexity is a huge challenge, and getting to grips with a new business and the complexity of their supply chain is a challenge that uh, that I love and have loved. Um, supply chain is interesting because it's top to bottom. It's both strategic, because we've heard from Unilever and other people that that's is strategic to their business purpose. It's also operational. It's got to work. So, you know, it's, it's top to bottom. It's strategic and it's operational. It's also end-to-end. Any decision in any part of the supply chain must take into consideration the, the, the total supply chain. So you know, act local, but think global. And that's, again, a source of great, uh, a great complexity, but it's essential to do that. It's also core to business, as we've heard, but it's also core to society. And if we look at uh, how how would we live our lives without effective supply chains, when we start to get um, shortages of product, we realise how important supply chain is to every one of us. So supply chain market is a fascinating uh, area, and I've thoroughly enjoyed my, how many years is it? 50 years, I think, working in supply chain. Well, I applaud you on your half century, uh, Alan, and um, I, I look forward to the next half century as well. Thank you. But I, I've always felt about supply chain and logistics. It is the science of making everything happen. And I, I think it's magical. Um, but for you, where did, this, where did the fascination come from and when did it begin? Well, as you said, Mark, my career was forged in steel. Uh, and I spent my, uh, when, I, when I graduated, I, I joined British Steel at Corby. 45,000 people employed in an integrating iron, steel, and tube plant. Uh, I, I, I went into production management and spent up time uh, as an assistant plant manager and then moved into management services and, and spent time working through other parts of British Steel because British Steel, it was integrated, 
in, it was vertically degraded. In other words, it had uh, raw material extraction on site in Northamptonshire, uh, iron making, steel making, coke make, coke ovens clearly, um, heavy mills, tube mills, tube finishing plants, and then export and, and distribution operations both in the UK and overseas. So I got involved in, in all aspects of that, which I didn't realise was supply chain until afterwards. But understanding the, the, the supply chain of British Steel uh, from, from on the ground was, was really very valuable for my future career. I then moved into consultancy with Coopers & Library, which is now PwC, PricewaterhouseCoopers, as you said. It's interesting because my first major supply chain study was in 1976. Good, goodness me, can you believe that? It was a warm summer, Alan, wasn't it? <laughs> it was a very hot summer, yeah. The year of the ladybird, was it? Uh, but that's what's... That that was uh, that was a study that uh, that took eighteen months. It was for Mont Edison, which is uh, a, a, a manufacturer of plastics uh, in Italy. But looking at their the European distribution operation, they didn't know how many warehouses they'd got. They had no idea how much product there was outside the factories. They had four factories in Italy, so they wanted to basically grasp the European situation to be able to get their arms around what was actually happening. And also, uh, it was a genuine supply chain study, although it's called the distribution study, because one of the things we looked at was to where we, where we should relocate a new factory, possibly outside Italy. So it, it was a, a European distribution study, but in fact, it was supply chain. The interesting thing was, uh, you talked about modelling. Um, models weren't available uh, in those days, as they are at the moment. We got lots of modelling systems for, for planning strategically, in, across the supply chain, but in, in those days the models didn't exist, so I developed a, a, a thing called DSS Distribution Strategy Simulator, which I'd written in Fortran Four because that's one of the the skills I picked up in British Steel when I worked for Management Services. But just to give you an idea of how the world's changed, in, in 1976 it took six months to actually collect any data. There were no um, ERP systems. There was no data outside of the manufacturing site in Italy. Uh, it took six months to collect the data. We had to get all the, the operating companies uh, in Frankfurt for two days, explain the study, explain what information we needed in terms of um, distribution facilities, transport facilities, uh, further processing, customer base. Uh, and then we had to, a very complex situation, so we developed uh, a, a tailor-made model, which took six months, again, uh, in Fortran 4. So these were the days when this, 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 a study like that would take 18 months. And there was a huge learning curve from the whole team, including myself. If we fast forward the clock from 1976 to the 1990s, then that type of study could be done in three months because the, the data was typically available within, within the businesses uh, because of uh, the ERP systems and the extended uh, technology that was available. That gave us access to data. And also, we have modeling systems now off the shelf. And I say system, it's not a, a model you can put in, but your modeling system where you've got the basic building blocks for a model uh, and you put it in place and then replicate uh, what's happening in the business. So you, you can start to try different changes, what ifs, and develop strategic options and evaluate those very, very quickly once the model is built, of course. So the 18 months in Montedison uh, was a long time. And what was frustrating about that is we're all very, very low down the learning curve and we hadn't thought about implementation. So if we, if we do a study like that nowadays, when you assemble the, uh, the data uh, and start the strategy process, it's absolutely essential to start to think about implementation at the very beginning. So the learning from that was certainly 
in terms of the difficulty of getting data and the, the difficulty of modeling, which have now been overcome. But the learning which uh, needs to still move forward more generally is to think about implementation uh, because the implementation is actually critical. It doesn't matter how good a strategy we have, if it's not implementable, then it's, uh, it, then it's of no use whatsoever. I mean, I'll talk later on about the, the work I've been doing uh, between Cranfield and FSO over the last uh, 15 years, uh, looking at um, strategic change and the, and the role of the supply chain leader and the role of supply chain in the boardroom. We've learned a huge amount. We know how to do this stuff now uh, because of the experience of all these previous studies. Uh, but um, so if you take an example uh, with the, as we moved into the 90s, um, a huge amount of work I did on the single European market as that was coming in, which should have happened on the 1st of January 1993. But one one project which did go very well, because we'd learned a lot by then, was Johnson Wax. So for Johnson Wax, they made aerosols in countries around Europe and also had bottles of things like toilet duct, which which required filling facilities. But what we developed with Johnson Wax was it was a mega factory just south of Amsterdam to make aerosols for the whole of Europe. Because if we look at the economic footprint of aerosols, if you're able to have a single market, then instead of having aerosol factories all around Europe, you have the, the, the economic footprint is about a thousand kilometers. So you can have a single aerosol plant in Amsterdam, put in the latest technology, very high volume. You can only support that investment if you have the volume coming through. But the volume for Europe was, was sufficient. If we take the bottles that were processed in filling plants, that's a far less capital intensive uh, in investment for production than uh, than aerosols. So the, the, the strategy for toilet duck and other filled bottles was to move those to, instead of having them in every country, it is to have uh, five or maybe six filling plants around Europe to cover the marketplace. Because the, the, the economic footprint, or if you like, the area that you can serve from one manufacturing plant for, for, uh, for filled bottles is more like 200 kilometers than 1,000 kilometers. So that was an example of a study that learnt a, a huge amount from the early studies that we were involved with. Um, and uh, that was one of many studies that, uh, that, that's, that, that I did across Europe. But also um, the similar concept in terms of NAFTA, North America Free Trade Alliance, between did work in the in, uh, US, US and Canada. Again, sewing together the countries to look at a single supply chain strategy between the, the various countries, and also for Asia Pacific. It, it would be remiss not to mention Brexit, of course, because we, we went into Europe uh, from, a, from a business point of view uh, to actually access the single European market. And we now have decided not to do that. Uh, and of course, we have some difficulties in developing our trade uh, with Europe. Um, one suggestion is the, is, the Swiss, is the Swiss type solution, but that's not going down too well among some of the Tory backbenchers. So I don't know where we're going, Mark, with this, but uh, certainly in terms of my experience of supply chain, it's been it's been fantastic moving from manufacturing through to these some very challenging studies uh, in Europe and, and around the world. And um, I think that if we look at what's happening at the moment, uh, and you'll ask me a question about this no doubt later on, we're going to have to sort of revise our European strategies and our global strategies to take account of the implications not just of Brexit, but of 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 of, of the, the the risks worldwide uh, in the positioning of, of Russia, of China, the the, the Suez blockage was a wake up call to say don't rely upon uh, regular imports from the from from over the Far East. 
we've, we've got to have a more agile and lean and responsive supply chain. But that was my um, that was my that was where my interest and and experience in supply chain capital market. Thanks, Alan. And um, one of my colleagues in Luguru, a senior consulting partner, who was a student of yours, attest um, to your abilities in linear programming. So that's, um, oh, right. Robert Good. Harper says Excellent. hello to you in terms of that. So there you go. Um, what's been the most difficult problem you've solved and why and how? Well, I must just refer back to linear programming because that's a, an operational research technique that, uh, that I did have some expertise in. Uh, and I have used it in anger as a standalone tool, which I just mentioned very briefly. So one of those studies that I did was actually for Hunter Douglas in uh, in, in the Netherlands at their European factory, uh, where the challenge there was to, to buy and blend raw materials and uh, aluminium from different sources, together with scrap aluminium, to make the right product for different markets. So linear programming was actually applied in anger, and it worked. I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, Alan. So that's just an aside, Marco. Uh, but uh, let's move on to your question there. The most difficult problem I've solved, well, I've, I've had a lot of difficult problems. Um, and I've solved, I've solved, I haven't solved some. I've worked with others to solve them. Uh, but equally well, I've worked with others, and we've had complete uh, failures. So in, if you take those 55 strategic studies, some have been quite excellent. And I've mentioned Johnson Wax. Uh, and another study I can uh, can think uh, of that was really very difficult, but uh, was was very successful, was a multinational company working in Indonesia, uh, where the uh, the market was growing at thirty uh, percent, and the strategy was to actually get the company geared up in a difficult environment uh, where transport uh, was highly fragmented, uh, the management was not skilled in supply chain. Uh, but to, to actually bring through a strategy to actually take the company forward in Indonesia. So a large business, the market growing at 30%, if they didn't grow at more than 30%, they were losing market share. Um, so that that was, and we, we achieved success there. And we started off thinking about implementation from the very beginning. And that was a real learning curve. Um, I, I should just comment in terms of variability of success that the, the practical research that, that I've done on these on many of these projects by this collaborative research between Cranfield School of Management and Everso was that the studies that we looked at, including the ones that I was in, involved in, had only a 50% success rate as measured in 2008. Uh, in other words, if you look at it, the strategic studies and looked at the those that were successful, those that were not, 20% of the failed completely and were abandoned. This was a surprise to everybody. And the average success rate was 50%. So very successful, clearly. But that was a wake-up call again to the boards of companies and to consultants to actually try and understand what was happening in terms of these strategic studies, which tended to be done behind closed doors, either with consultants or without consultants, or with academics or without academics. But the success rate was, was appalling. And if we start to think about the cost of embarking on a strategic study, the, the management time involved, the cost involved, which may include consultants, it may not, and to, then to end up with a, a strategy that fails, uh, it's, it is not only a waste of money and time and effort, it, we also have a super tanker without a rudder because the company has no direction. We re repeated that research in, uh, in 2008. We published that we, it was a continuous piece of research. But when we published in 2018, now, that success rate had gone up to about 65%. So you can see in that I have been involved in a lot of failures 
So when people say you must be very experienced, I define experience as the sum of my previous mistakes. I am very experienced. Uh, the main issues in the failures was trying to bring the, the players together in the supply chain, uh, either the functions within the business or more particularly the, the different businesses involved who are stakeholders in the extended supply chain. So the suppliers, the manufacturers, the customers, the outsourced logistics providers. Uh, because there's a lot of fragmentation, as you know, across the supply chain. Uh, I can think particularly of Unilever, uh, where I worked with the board in Rotterdam with a guy called Toon Edelman, who was on the executive of Unilever. And we knew Unilever across Europe was a mess. And this is public information. Uh, we've spoken about this on the public platform with Unilever. Um, so the, the, the challenge was to, to, to try and improve the performance of the transport operation that Unilever have across, has across Europe. When I say the transport operation, we counted 450 logistics service providers uh, across Europe, all being um, engaged by the local operating companies. Uh, and the, the, cha the, the task initially was to get that 450 down to 250. Unilever was spending £500 million, and this is gained public information, uh, on these 450 logistics service providers around Europe. And we knew there was huge inefficiencies in terms of lack of um, collaboration between the transport operators. Our intention was to get that 450 down to 250 uh, and have an improved operation and a, a dramatic reduction in the cost. We totally failed. We failed because we could not get the operating companies to cooperate. Uh, they had their own business, their own P&L. Their job was to produce product X or product Y, consumer goods, um, ice cream, whatever it was, for their local market. And they had no interest whatsoever in uh, the cost of transport. They just contracted it out. And so we failed. Of course, subsequent to that, huge, tremendous progress in Unilever. Uh, and we have now a Unilever that is, 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 is operating around Europe effectively with control tower in, in Poland, uh, overseeing the transport operations. But it's incredible to see what actually goes on inside the boardroom when you start to look at these different businesses and these studies. So a lot of problems which have been challenging Markham, some have been solved successfully, but not by one person, uh, not by just different people, but by companies working together. Uh, and a lot of failures. It's interesting that the research that we've done shows the success rate of, of, of strategic studies. We also identified the barriers to success uh, and it, both in 2008 and in 2018, 80% of the barriers were people-related, 20% technical. So technology is essential, but it is by no means sufficient. Uh, the, the, the people challenges in 2008 were primarily about lack of support from the board for strategic developments. That's changed dramatically by 2018. The board were involved um, because of the learning that businesses had been through. We'd like also to think as a result of people reading our, our research reports, which were very practical uh, and uh, action-oriented research reports. But um, in 2018, 80% of the barriers were still people-related, but they were all around, you know, I haven't got the resources to do this. Um, I know what to do, but I haven't got time to do it. Uh, and the question was, how do senior managers do their job uh, operationally and at the same time invest energy in, in future strategic thinking. And that was quite uh, quite a challenge. But the key requirement in all of these was to engage the, for the successful ones with the board. And in the Indonesia case, the CEO was a fantastic uh, guy who then became uh, uh, replaced by an Indonesian uh, woman, uh, both very good CEOs and chairman. 
where we started at the top and we developed uh, a vision for the business. Uh, and the key requirements for strategic change are it has to be vision-led, it has to be built upon the business strategy, and those are the starting points. Uh, so we don't start off with logistics, we start off with the business. From that, we, we look at the customer requirements now and the future, and we develop those uh, to create a vision for the business, which we then need to get ownership of across the business. Uh, then we can start to look at supply chain. And uh, everything we looked at in supply chain in terms of new manufacturing facilities, uh, changing the performance of manufacturers, uh, manufacturing to move, move from, um, from lean to agile, putting in systems, it was all customer-led, and collaboration inside the business was absolutely critical, and collaboration with their business partners. There are two ingredients to change, to strategic change, technology and collaboration. Technology is essential, but it's not sufficient, and it has to be backed up by the, the focus on people at all levels, uh, and I'm including here the CEO. Uh, if the CEO is not committed to the project and does not suspend, spend sufficient time, then it's not going to work. I remember saying to the CEO, I had breakfast with the CEO in, uh, in Indonesia uh, when we, were, we, we, we developed the vision and we were moving on to implementation, uh, it, real. And he said, um, he, he said, look, you've got 28 projects here and, and my, my people tell me they're all needed. Um, it's the only study I've done, Mark, whether we never discuss cost, which is a nice one, because they, they had to do this and they, they trusted us to, to do it in the best way. And we had a huge team of our people and their people because at the end of the day, they've got to take this on and run it themselves. Uh, but I said to the uh, I said to the uh, the CEO, I said, look, you haven't got a supply chain director. He said, well, basically, do you suggest we recruit one? I said, no, let's make one. So we created a supply chain director function by asking the production manager and the commercial manager, the, commercial, the production director and the commercial director to act as the supply chain voice in the board because they were both experienced people. And I, secondly, I said, you need somebody from the organisation who's going to see this through uh, and make sure that the, the project is on track, both while we're doing it with you, and also when we've gone. I said, you need somebody that I've called the guardian of the vision. And he said, okay, yes, anyway, uh, I went back to the UK and, and I got a phone call saying, oh, I also, also said, by the way, this, has, this, this, this project has got to be on the board agenda of every board meeting. And, uh, and it's not five minutes, it's got to be half an hour. He said, well, we have a board meeting every month. I said, yes, and it's got to be on the, the agenda of that board meeting. Anyway, so I went back to the UK and he phoned me up and said, Alan, they've got a board meeting in two weeks' time. Um, as you suggested, I'll put it on the agenda, and I will do for every other board meeting. And, and so I went uh, over to Indonesia and, uh, and had a breakfast with him before the board meeting. And he said, I've also got um, the two directors to, and they're briefed on, on supply chain leadership. He said, I've also got the guardian of the vision. So he wheeled in this uh, lady called Carol Simo, and uh, he said, this is the guardian of the vision. And I knew her from, she'd worked on some of the projects. And um, she showed me a business card. And on her business card, it had Guardian of the Vision. And that was really creative because everywhere she went, people say, what do you do? She said, I'm the Guardian of the Vision. And then that project was very successful. So it's vision-led and the vision's got to be retained through the whole project. And I did say to him beforehand, I said, the, the sort of person you need is the Guardian of the Vision. I didn't actually mean call her that, but call him or her that, but he did. And I said, he's somebody that's, is a rising star in the organization. And somebody that's on projects so important, you can't possibly afford to take them off it. What you need to do is take that person off those projects. And one of the key learnings of strategy work is you've got to take it seriously because the future of the business depends on it. 
So you need to put your best people on it, even if it means taking them off other projects. So that was uh, that was some of the learning for those studies, Marco. Thank you ever so much, Alan. For, for sure, you've operated at an extremely senior level in terms of looking for uh, value creation within supply chain. And I think largely by simplification, these are major challenges. And um, I certainly applaud what you've done. Um, my next question is, uh, it, it probably is a more personal one, is what are you most proud of? Ah, okay. Thank you, Mark. Well, yeah, I mean, clearly I'm proud of some of the successes that I've, I've been involved in with other people. But as a more personal note, the, the particular focus that I've tried to give in all that I do is to encourage people to engage in supply chain as a career at all levels and all people. So it's, it's got to be inclusive. And and for that, you've been you, you've certainly been successful. Well, I set up young, the Young Professionals Forum when I was president of the UK, the CRT UK. Uh, and and that's that. I was proud of that with other people. And when I was president of CRT International, I set up WILT, Women in Logistics and Transport, as a, a global initiative, and then rolled it out into eight countries, including Saudi Arabia, interestingly. But the Saudi government wouldn't let us have the ceremony in uh, in Saudi, uh, but so we held it in Dubai. But um, th- that was uh, that was a that was an initiative, which has gone from strength to strength, and I'm very proud of having been involved in that. Also appointed one of the, the the jobs of international president is to find the next president, and I was very proud to appoint the the first woman president of the CRT International, Dr. Dorothy Chan from Hong Kong, and that was a, a very proud moment in my life to introduce her. Apart from the, our patron, uh, the Princess Royal, uh, who was our first honorary president, but for, in terms of working president, Dorothy Chan, so that's good. And, and the, the, some some other things come back to with you later on, Malcolm. So I had, a, I had an email a few weeks ago from um, a lady called Chloe Zeng, who is uh, an operational manager, uh, sorry, operational director of Microsoft in the US. And she said, you won't remember me, but I was with you in 2003 and you were running a workshop in the UK. And I came along as a fresh 23-year-old Chinese graduate. And you came up to me afterwards and said, um, will you join our advisory board? And I said to you, what can I offer you? I know nothing. I'm Chinese and I'm fresh into the country. And you said, that's why we want you uh, on the board. And she joined the board and, and she remembered this and she, she moved on to be a, a, a director of Microsoft. So, you know, they, 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 these are the things that, this is a legacy I'm really proud of from a personal point of view. I'm also, of course, very proud of my family. Um, in December 2006, I was interviewed in, uh, by the press uh, and they said, what's the most important thing that's happened to you this year? Thinking I would say my OBE. I said, my oldest daughter got married. That's the most important thing that happened this year. Uh, and, you know, uh, as you said in your introduction, the, the family is everything. Um, so I was fortunate enough to meet my wife uh, at Oxford, and she's absolutely wonderful. And I was, I was asked, to, I was on a panel at Cranfield School of Management for MBA students, uh, and they, asked, they were asking the panel, what's the most important decision you ever made in your working life? And I said, choose the right partner and make sure that she or he chooses you. And that's the most important decision I made. How many years together is it now, Alan? 52. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Really, congratulations. So um, anybody that's balanced family and had a successful marriage as well as doing all that you've done, um, it's notable. But in perhaps in a a slightly negative vein... um, what maybe has frustrated you most? I think that 
I mean, people, you can get frustrated with people, but remember that people are working in the, within the environment in which they're placed or measured or rewarded. Although you may be frustrated by individuals because of their lack of vision or their lack of cooperation, you've got to put that in the context of, of, of the business they work within. So my frustration is not with people, it's with businesses. Um, businesses tend to think locally uh, and act locally. Uh, you've got to act locally but think global. So not thinking outside the box is very frustrating. Um, I mean, we've done a lot of work together in, in, in collaboration, and you'll remember Peter Surtees, who was a... a I do indeed. He was, a, he was a director of NUPEG, and he was also... His, his day job was supply chain, European Supply Chain Director of Kimberly Clark. Peter Surtees is still the, the only European Supply Chain Director that I've met who had collaboration with other businesses written in as part of his personal objectives. Uh, so, in other words, he, he, he was a, a promoter uh, actually, indeed, you were, Marco, of collaboration, but it's got to have the support of your business. Uh, and so, you know, the frustration for me is with businesses thinking in, internally and thinking parochially. Uh, the challenge is to think outside the box. Uh, and we, we, we both know the, 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 the situation we try to tackle and still are tackling in NUPEG and other businesses, which is about um, the utilisation of, uh, of, of, of vehicles around Europe. You know, a third of HGVs running on the roads in Europe are empty. And of the ones not empty, they're about 60% full. Uh, and, and, and businesses don't appear to be capable of tackling this problem. Um, if you look at European supply chains, I mean, it, it's like a plate of spaghetti where any individual strand of spaghetti has been designed optimally for the businesses it's, the businesses linking together, uh, which is fine. But if you put it all around, you just get a heap, a heap of spaghetti, uh, which doesn't make sense because there's no connectivity between the various links. Uh, and that's that challenge that, uh, that that we've been working on, Marco, for 20 years. And it's still as severe as it was before. So that's very frustrating. I, I, I was on the advisory board of Alice. Uh, and if you don't know what Alice is, uh, look it up on the website. A-L-I-C-E, Alliance for Logistics Innovation by Collaboration Across Europe. Uh, and it's got a tremendous uh, a membership. Uh, it's a European supported organisation, but it is open to membership of UK companies, by the way. It's produced a blueprint uh, for zero emissions uh, via collaboration, um, bringing people together. And there's so many initiatives going on with the ISO. I would recommend that to anybody to have a look at. But that's, that's, not, that's my frustration, Mark. Alan, I mean, do you think businesses are a bit like people on occasion? So if you look at a person, they might have tasks and objectives laid out for them, and that's what they're going to be measured against. And our business is really the same in terms of you when um, you when they're being tested, and you they're probably tested by their investors and their shareholders, etc. What are they actually testing them on? And quite often, it is arguably it might be parochial financial performance or you know, level of growth. Um, you, is it the 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 broader picture that the, the way that we're actually measuring the performance of business? is uh, too narrow? Well, yes, it's a very good question, Malcolm, because if we look at publicly quoted businesses, the, the focus of the chief executive, the chairman, is often on the on the financial markets rather than on looking down at the company and how they're working. And as we all know, financial institutions can be very short-term. And short-termism is, is, is a huge challenge to businesses. And a lot of the irrational decisions we see made in business are as a result of the downward pressure from the investors. Um, which is which is totally unhelpful. 
and the and the, the CEO is, is caught right in the middle, the chairman, whoever it is, is caught right in the middle between the operating needs of the business and the needs of the of the, of the stock market. So it, yes, it, it's you, you can't separate that. It doesn't seem, Alan, like a particularly sustainable model, um, really, um, and and that might be a naive statement to make on the basis of. Um, you know, on the on the basis of that, and nor nor do I want to, you know, put myself out on a limb to to criticise the great and the good that are working extremely hard to operate our large scale businesses. But it would seem to me that um, the dashboard's quite restricted. You know, it, 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 yep. it's, and and that that for me is um, it's probably a question a lot of the younger generations are asking now. You know, what should we measure on? I agree with you entirely, but you know we are where we are at the moment, so that is a challenge. It's a frustrating challenge. Alan, do you feel that all is well in the land of logistics and supply chain at the moment, and why might you feel that? Well, supply chain has matured beyond our imagination, and we have what some truly excellent supply chains uh, with some excellent people involved. So that's that's the good news. Um, but there is still a, a, a tremendous issue in terms of genuine collaboration internally within the businesses and externally between different businesses. And it starts at the top. We've talked about the precious um, chief executives and chairman. The role of the supply chain leader uh, is to lead the board in terms of supply chain thinking. Uh, and that's where the, the, the opportunity exists. Part of the research showed that, um, I go back to this research, to very practical research. In 2008, there were 50% of supply chain leaders on the executive board of their operating division, uh, which was dramatically different from the last time I'd looked at this in 2002. But th that was a figure of 50%. So where the supply chain leader, whatever they're called, they're actually on the operating board of their, of their division. By 2018, when we did the, uh, the next uh, report, that had increased to 75%, but it seems to have stuck a bit because there's some evidence that supply chain leaders in some businesses were on the board but weren't quite up to the task. So it does raise a question of leadership, both in the board by the chief executive or the chairman, and also leadership of supply chain. Um, the, the, the research that I did, I ran the European Council on the Global Supply Chain. I was chairman then, project director of that in Brussels. And we did a study which looked at successful supply chain leaders around Europe. And we found out that they were what we call T-shaped. In other words, they had a, a very broad skill set as well as a, a, some detailed knowledge. In other words, imagine the letter T. The skill, the skill set uh, in terms of deep knowledge of, of the supply chain is the upright bit. And then the, the bar across the top is the breadth of that individual. And the breadth we found out was actually very, 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 very significant. And how did they get that breadth? Was because they'd had zigzag careers. In other words, they knew they'd worked in, if they're, if they're, if they're a manufacturer, they'd worked in retailing, they'd worked in finance, they'd worked in uh, procurement or whatever. But that concept of a zigzag career to enable the leaders to have that breadth, it was, was seen to be absolutely critical. And that's something that I think we need to work on more because if you look at the way in which people, well, people's careers are managed within businesses, they tend to be vertical silos. Um, and I, I, I never forget, there's, a, there's, a, there's an organization set up by the government called Skills for Logistics, who produced this ladder to success, showing how somebody at an operational level 
in a warehouse or transport operation could be a director by going up through the layers. That is very old-fashioned thinking. The leaders of today and of the future have got, have got to have this breadth, which you only get by a zigzag career. And the challenge, Malcolm, is that this may mean moving between companies, not just functions. It may not be in, in a company's interest to create this zigzag career because they might lose people. But, you know, if you lose some people, you'll gain others. So that's an industry-wide issue about uh, leadership, uh, which we need to uh, we need to actually tackle. I certainly support the view on zigzag career. I think the, the wonderful thing that I have had is the good fortune to interview people that did start at the base of the logistics industry and now actually um, leading uh, within that. But um, that doesn't break what you've said. Um, you, on, on my own basis, I've moved around on the basis of I want to do what interests me. And I do what I do now because I'm continually fascinated and I like the, well, variety is the spice of life. And um, I, I like the variety of problems that we get to solve. So I'm, I, I certainly agree with you there. What are your thoughts on the on the interface between industry and academia? Because this is, this is something that you've, I believe you've done extremely well. Um, and you, I, I certainly view that relationships with academic organizations for instance we have one with manchester metropolitan university uh, which i really value um i think the i think there's a lot to be gained by it you know it's it's a bit like real pure pure academic thought and ideas meeting practical application um that that's what it means for me what what does it mean for you because you did more of it yeah uh, I'm I'm totally on the same page as yourself in terms of recognising the, the the issue. Uh, my experience in industry with British Steel and with the companies I worked with led me to believe that the word academic was a dirty word. So it's used as a derogative word to say, well, that solution is just academic. Academic means it doesn't work. And that is something that I've tried to get away from. Equally well... Uh, I've done. I've worked in academia. I at Leicester School of Management. Then I was at Warwick University Business School. And the word "practical" was a dirty word. So I remember when I when I joined Cranfield to set up the 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 uh, the, 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 the the Cranfield Centre for what, what is now the Cranfield Centre for Logistics um, and Supply Chain Management. My former colleagues at Warwick said, "Cranfield, that's a bit practical, isn't it?" I said, "Yes, sir, it is." And so I went to Cranfield um, because Cranfield has always had. I did my master's degree at Cranfield. It has the. It, it's always had um, a, a very, very strong industrial link. And in fact, uh, when I joined Cranfield to do my master's degree, Cranfield had ninety percent of its uh, funding from industry and ten percent from government, whereas most universities were the other way around. Um, so yeah, I, I regard myself as a as a pracademic, which is a practical academic. It may not come over very well, uh, but that's uh, what I've always tried to do. I set my objective uh, to close the gap between industry. And um, and academia, and that's what I've worked on uh, as as a sort of as as a as a, as a mission as, as part of the, all the work that I've done. Oh, in fact, Malcolm, if you remember when we, uh, I mean, if you look at the Cranfield uh, notepad in front of me, and it says transforming knowledge into action, that's the strapline. Yep. Um, and and we developed that. I was on the advisory board of Cranfield School of Management when it was first set up uh, ten years ago, and we developed this strapline. You know, what does Cranfield actually do, and how does it differentiate between other universities and business schools? Because it's action. It's transforming knowledge into action. It's not research for the sake of research. Research in, in industry is pointless unless it can be used. Uh, and, and I'd certainly um, certainly agree that point. 
But I, I think just as much as there is a duty of academia to reach out and try and be more pragmatic, there's also a view of industry needing to say and be honest about the problems that they're having difficulty solving and finding new ideas that might actually help them solve those problems. And, uh, you know, what, what, what might argue, um, so let's be a little bit controversial, if we were looking at transportation only in a European environment and we said that the results of all of the well-meaning and well-focused activities to deliver fulfilment to the customer results in a, a substantial percentage of vehicles being either underutilized or unutilized, that as a result of this, you, all of these exercises in good intention actually doesn't sound that good. So that leads me to my next question, and perhaps I don't, I didn't want to lead you um, into an answer, but what do you think are the challenges in logistics and supply chain um, that we've not yet been able to solve? Well, I have to come back to the word collaboration. <laughs> I, I, it, it is. It is about working within organisations, between organisations. That 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 is the soft spot. Um, I mean, there are some other technical issues. We've got to move from lean. The, 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 we, I talked about lean thinking earlier on, which is the way in which manufacturing companies tended to go. And lean manufacturing is all very well, but if you haven't got agility, then it's uh, it, then it doesn't tick the box. So we've got to move from lean to agile, uh, which means being responsive, not necessarily maximising or sorry, maximising minimising cost but having agility, and we pay a little bit of a price for agility, maybe. But there are ways of, of getting lean and agile to work together. A postponement being an example of a, of, a, of a technique that you can do to get lean manufacturing up front, then agility uh, and, and other activities down the supply chain. Um, but uh, the, uh, the, 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 so there are other techniques. Um, we, we, we've got to start to think about, uh, as I said earlier on, we, we, we're coming through a very... Difficult time in terms of world supply chain performance uh, and geopolitics uh, and, uh, and, and, and and challenges on, on energy and so forth and sourcing uh, problems. So we, we're happy to go through now, I believe, an era of major strategic change where the strategies that we put in place uh, for the single Europe market, for example, or to meet the ch opportunities of globalization need to be revised, not changed necessarily dramatically, but they've got to be revisited, uh, and that that is, I think, something that needs to be done. Uh, and should it, you know, if it's going to be over, done over the next three, four, five years, it's got to be started now. So, on top of all the current problems in terms of sorting out the issues in the supply chain today and the firefighting, uh, we've got to actually start to think about how we would strategically um, redesign our business supply chains globally in terms of sourcing, uh, nearshoring, offshore, whatever it might be. But the time is imminent now for, 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 for doing that. And I think if we don't do it now, we'll regret it later on. I certainly agree with you, Alan. I mean, my, my sort of considered thoughts on it, um, if I may, are, uh, yes, a journey from lean to agile makes eminent sense. Um, but also, looking at strategy, shouldn't that be agile as well? Absolutely. So we say, well, okay, we've found the answer. We've uh, invested money to find the answer. That is generally based on the operating conditions of today and doesn't necessarily have a risk model behind it that says, okay, circumstances are changing, you know, it's time for you to actually review whether or not this strategy is still relevant. So offshoring might be one example of that. 
or even going back to your centers of manufacturing excellence uh, within uh, the circumstances change. And so ideally, the, the agile strategy would actually adapt with it and say, well, okay, don't do uh, strategic action to be point one. Now you need to go down to 2B.2 instead. So I'm going to ask a complicated question, um, but I think you'll get it. So the starting point is why do you feel that collaboration in industry is key? And what do you think, therefore, would be the outcome if we could get industry out of its many silos and get them collaborating? And finally, what do you think is stopping us from achieving more than has been? That's a big question. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Uh Okay, uh, I remember going to a, um, a a senior workshop in uh, Istanbul. It was a meeting of the CEO forum with chief executives from retailers and manufacturers who get together on various topics around the world. And this was a, a meeting in, in uh, chief executives in Istanbul, specifically to talk about supply chain. I wasn't there to talk about industrial supply chain. In fact, I was presenting as a trustee of TransAid. Uh, to try and get uh, their support for the Transail, which is Transport for Africa, where I was a trustee at that time. But I was uh, I was uh, uh, there, fortunately, to hear the whole proceedings. And there was a presentation on what the world could look like if all the manufacturing and retailer companies in the world uh, put their, all their product together. And it was some work done by, I'm not quite sure, I think it was Erston Young. Uh, and they produced this they produced two configurations. One was how the, the world worked as, as now uh, in terms of supply chains, you know, a, com a complete mess, if you like. Uh, very, very complicated, very inefficient. Two, one where all the product from different parts of the world was, was consolidated in terms of moving across the world and moving out in a consolidated way to all the customer centers. And it was a very, it wasn't a simple diagram, but by gum, it was simplified. And the estimate was that the cost would be, that the consultants did an estimate, that the cost would be something like a third. Uh, I mean, totally unrealistic, of course. But the, the, the ultimate prize in collaboration is huge. If that was just an indicator of what could be achieved, now, it, it can't be achieved because people will never do that. I mean, when I was working with Unilever, um, I'm going back a long time when it was, this was the case, first of all. If you mentioned Potter and Gamble in a Unilever meeting, you'd literally be asked to leave the room. You would leave the room. And then, you know, in the early 2000s, uh, I was with you in Liver when they were collaborating with Roger Gamble on, on warehousing space. So the world's changed dramatically. This concept that the source of competition is in the truck, the source of competition is not in the truck. The source of competition is on the shelf and the availability and the, and the functionality of the product. So, and and that's the, that's the, that, there's still that attitude. I mean, if we didn't collaborate, we'd all be chartering private planes around the world for ourselves. Every time we get on an airplane, we collaborate. So, so this concept of, of we can't work with the enemy, um, but we can do things together. So that, that's there's, there's, there's a still a, some of the attitude. I think it's going there, Marco. But the, the, the prize of collaboration is huge. I'd, I'd certainly agree. Um, but you might say, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? Um, <laughs> but the... The essence for me is um, you, you, you start with a financial perspective, but then all of a sudden um, we, we've now got, and I know some argue not, but the majority of academic views says we are. We have a, a real issue in terms of climate change and global warming, and you, we need to be able to get our emissions down. 
this has to drive some force of change, and it will drive change. I feel in a you know in a number of ways. Um, even given that, even looking at the change of technology, let's say in terms of a truck, will that be as easy to run? You know, have an eight hundred mile range without refueling, or will you going to have you know a hundred miles on electric? Uh, or if you're going to have to have a hybrid vehicle, what's going to be the loss of payload? Or if you've got a battery vehicle, again, what is going to be the loss of payload? What it is, I think it's going to change completely our supply chains, how they work for the future. But I think the other big prize, Alan, in terms of collaboration, if we can get it done, is about modal shift. I mean, I get mightily frustrated from a, you know, a parochial UK perspective that we live on an island, yep. and yet... We talk about lack of infrastructure and cost of infrastructure, and yet we move so little by sea. We we, we don't do anything in terms of anything yep. major other than aggregates, for example, um, in terms of coastal shipping in this country. And we, you, you, you look at it and you would say even a horrible old Roro ferry burning um, heavy marine diesel yep. is 50 times less emissive yep. or based on a truckload quantity than a single truck by unit. And so how do you drive that change? Well, the only way you drive that change is by looking at the problem in a different way. Well, the, the, a move from, from, I mean, rail is the same. Any move of, of substantial product to rail or short-street shipping is, is about volume. Yep. Uh, and so you only get the volume by collaboration. Yep. If you, if you can put the stuff together, and we've done work together, Malcolm, yep. on, uh, on seeing how we can, we can change the flow of good flows around Europe. Uh, and and push them together. We get we justify a block train. So forget about the rail wagon, block trains, and and of course they are used by many companies, but it, it it's few and far between at the moment. Yep. Uh, and the same is true of shipping. I, I would always look at block block to shipping. I mean, you know, if we want to recreate and revitalise our ports in this country. For me, I would say, and um, I'm I'm from Merseyside originally, so I've maybe got a vested interest. I'd like to see. Our ports even busier than they are today. Yeah, I agree. So now, Gypsy Rose Waller, I, I'm here for a reading. And um, my, my reading is, what does the future hold for the logistics and supply chain industry? My first question, are you going to use tea leaves, cards, or a crystal ball, Alan? Or are you? <laughs> w w what's it going to be? Well, I think something diagrammatic is always good. Okay. And I, still come back to the, I still come back to the words like T-shaped. And zigzag. Okay, T-shaped and zigzag. In terms of the, the lead, because the lead, leadership is lead, the, the future has got to be driven um, by leaders and to produce new leaders, and 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 I think we we're entering an era where we've got to actually take leadership more seriously, um, and it, 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 we've got to encourage people from outside supply chain to come into supply chain. I agree. Supply chain is not is not you know supply chain shouldn't shouldn't hog the, the, the road in terms of who does it. So, I mean, a lot of the companies that, 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 that I work with now are bringing in supply chain leaders who know very little about supply chain. That may sound silly, but I go back to my T-shaped, where the breadth is more important than the depth. And it's more important to have a supply chain leader that can talk the language of the boardroom and understands procurement and understands retailing, understands the customer, than it is to have a supply chain leader who understands about warehousing and transport planning systems. So, so supply chain, it may be the word supply chain is the wrong word, Barker, but we're looking at leadership in the boardroom of all the things that supply chain does. 
And the ideal, of course, is to have that person as the CEO or the chairman. And so, you know, to, to have a, a, a world where supply chain is fully understood and driven at the top is, 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 would be the ideal for me. It, yeah, it's never been a supply chain, though, Alan, has it? It's always been a supply network and, more appropriately, a network of supply networks. It always has been more. Oh yeah, it's and it always will be. Yeah. But I remember when I was when I was running the European Council of Global Supply Chain in Brussels, um, I was always looking for very good speakers from very good companies, and I managed to get hold of Zara, uh, and said, "Look, you know, you've got a and and they're very difficult to get on the platform. Zara almost impossible to get on the platform, but uh, I had a contact uh, who I'd met, and uh, I, I I found the right person. I said, "Look, can you come and address?" The, the European Council on Global Supply Chain, here are the CEOs and, and supply chain leaders of some of the, the, the European's biggest companies, and we want to hear your story on supply chain. And I was amazed when they asked, because they said, I said, you got a great supply chain model. They said, that's not a supply chain model, that's our business model. And they, they, they took umbrage to the fact that I described as a supply chain model. I mean, clearly it, it is a supply chain model. And if you compare Zara to, I'm not insulting Marks and Spencer, I still shop there. But Marks and Spencer's where they've got, you know, these seasons of the year, they, they, they have to plan ahead and they get it all the, the sizing wrong and they get the wrong stuff in the wrong place. Zara's highly responsive, agile, and does things instantly. But they regard their model not as a supply chain model, but as their business model. And that's what we've got to get into people's heads. It isn't supply chain trying to take over the world. This is business trying to work differently. I actually think we need to start renaming it as uh, the science of making things happen. And we need to have our new magicians that, that are are there and yeah, make it all happen because I again I I said earlier supply chain is absolutely magical and um, I, I I think it needs due respect. I totally agree. Well, it's it's a fantastic career. I mean, you, you know, one of the objectives clearly of, of these podcasts is to get people who don't work in supply chain to work in supply chain. I mean, it's a fantastic area. As I said, it's top to bottom, it's end to end, it's it's challenging, it's interesting. Uh, you can get career progression beyond your wildest dreams. You can get money behind your wildest dreams. Uh, I've I, I've achieved things I never thought would be possible, um, and uh, I already played with it. So the, I would, you know, I, I, I do say that this is the, the future of the uh, the future profession to go for. The supply chain's got to be in there amongst the leaders, Malcolm. Absolutely agree, Alan. So look, in conclusion, when you first entered the world of logistics and supply chain, it was the Cinderella of business functions. It wasn't well regarded. Uh, it wasn't really even thought of in those terms. Um, it was distribution, warehousing, and transport, and maybe with a bit of planning over the top. Thanks in part to your efforts, uh, we now have a function that is valued by every organisation and represented on many boards. We have people studying logistics and supply chain and bright people establishing their careers and developing new and exciting futures for the industry. So, you've helped Cinderella find her Prince Charming, and because of that, I think you're the king of logistics. So, thank you for all that you've done, and we wish you a wonderful uh, partial retirement, although I'm going to do my best to encourage you a little bit out of it, with a little time to spend on dreaming new futures for the rest of us to be inspired by. Alan, it's been uh, a real pleasure to talk to you, and thank you. Malcolm, my pleasure as well. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Logistics Collective podcast. We publish on www.logisticscollective.com and you can register on there and you can get some reminders. You can also interact with us. You can send us voice messages. And um, what do we have coming? Uh, we have a whole list of people that uh, I'm due to interview. 
Uh, but this is a, a pleasure and a passion of mine, and I hope you find it as perhaps entertaining as I do. It's lovely to talk to people. You can get in contact by email, podcast at logisticscollective.com, or leave a voice message on our website, logisticscollective.com. The podcast is a production by Laguru.